Seeking the Extraordinary is sponsored by The Colony Group, a national wealth and business management company that seeks the extraordinary by pursuing an unrelenting mission of providing clients with peace of mind and empowering their visions of tomorrow. To learn more about how The Colony Group manages beyond money, visit thecolonygroup.com. Welcome, fellow seekers of the extraordinary. Welcome to our shared quest. A quest not for a thing, but for an ideal. A quest not for a place, but into the inner, unexplored regions of ourselves. A quest to understand how we can achieve our fullest potential by learning from others who have done or are doing exactly that. May we always have the courage and wisdom to learn from those who have something to teach. Join me now in Seeking the Extraordinary. I'm Michael Nathanson, your Chief Seeker of the Extraordinary. Today's guest has been on my wish list for some time. As you guessed it, his story is extraordinary. He's 30 years old. You've probably been following his story since he was only two. In short, he is a walking miracle. In his own words, as the little boy living with a rare terminal condition, I inspired others with my hope and perseverance. As a young adult, fresh out of college, I was faced with the grim reality I would not make it to 30 without a miracle. I normally use my own words to introduce our guests, but this guest is a prolific writer and speaker. So I'll be using many of his own words throughout this interview. He once wrote, you may know who I am. I have cystic fibrosis. And when I was diagnosed in 1993 with the genetic condition filling my lungs with thick, sticky mucus, I graced the cover of Sports Illustrated with my dad. At the time, he was in the peak of his NFL career. A quarterback's crusade is what the Sports Illustrated cover story was called. And it detailed my dad's mission to find a cure for the condition surely going to take away his son me. Now, our guest does have cystic fibrosis, but he very much has made it to 30. In fact, he's doing quite well. He's thriving. And it seems to me that while he has made fighting cystic fibrosis and other rare diseases part of his life's mission, his life is wonderfully complex and multidimensional. Professionally, he's developed a patient engagement platform for a medical nutrition company, built a venture philanthropy practice, and has been a youth sports coach. He's consulted on clinical trial development, real-world evidence population health study, and a cystic fibrosis-specific mental health and wellness screening tool. Oh, and he's also helped raise hundreds of millions for the fight against cystic fibrosis along the way. With a huge following, he blogs and writes regularly, having been featured in the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, The Hill, and Stat News. He's co-hosted the podcast Breathe In, a cystic fibrosis podcast, which was an iTunes top 200 health podcast in 2018, and he currently hosts his own podcast. He delivered the pre-commencement address at the St. Louis University School of Medicine commencement exercises, is presently working towards a Master of Public Health at the Dartmouth University, 
Institute for Health Policy and Clinical Practice and holds an MBA from the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth and a BA from Boston College. He sits on the board of directors at the Boomer Esiason Foundation and No Patient Left Behind. He recently got married and is now expecting his first child. And his father, by the way, happens to have been my first guest on this show, the great Boomer Esiason. Please welcome extraordinary Gunnar Esiason. Welcome, Gunnar. Thanks, Mike, for having me on the podcast. Hopefully not called away to the, to the hospitals. We're expecting a, a baby any day now, but I, I appreciate the, the kind words of the intro. Great. Well, great to have you here. And uh, yeah, it's an exciting time in your life. You're, so, you're, so is your wife due this month? Do I understand that correctly? Oh, yeah, we are, we are due within the next two weeks. So um, really at, at any moment now, we are, we are on Baby Watch 2021. It's an exciting time in our lives. It's an exciting time for both our families, too, I think. Um, Fantastic. For sure. But uh, yeah, no, thanks again for, for having me on the show. And, uh, and you've already revealed the gender. Am I correct about that? Yeah, we're having a baby boy. The, the name is still top secret, but yeah, we're having a baby boy. Wonderful, wonderful. And how are you feeling these days? Are you, are you well? Yeah, no, I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. I think my cystic fibrosis is very well managed, as I'm sure we'll get into here in the podcast. But uh, yeah, no, I'm uh, doing well. Uh, looking towards the end of grad school. It's been a long, uh, long three years in grad school, but things are looking up for the cystic fibrosis population. And uh, we're, we're fortunate enough to have played a small part in, uh, in making, that, making that a reality. Okay, well, let's get into it. I, I know that our, our audience is eager to learn more about you. I certainly am as well. Yeah, in some respects, you're, you're kind of a living miracle. And, <laughs> and I have to believe that you and your family once wondered whether you'd even get a chance to be a husband, lo- let alone a father. Mm-hmm. Am I wrong? Or did you always just know? Did you always have faith? It's a good question. And it's something that I've been reflecting on a lot lately as my wife. Wife and I are expecting our first child. My, my parents had me around the same age that I'm at right now. And it's hard to really consider what they must have felt like in the early 90s when they received the CF diagnosis. I was two at the time. My dad was in his early 30s, just traded to the Jets. Big life experience and change for him and our family. And then all of a sudden they're saddled with the CF diagnosis and, and the cystic fibrosis of the early 90s for, for your listeners to know. Back then it was a very different condition than, than one that it is now. The CF is a protein dysfunction disease. And the result of two genetic mutations that are passed down from my parents and, and lead to an abundance of thick, sticky mucus in a number of different organs, but primarily it, it manifests in, in the lungs and the pulmonary system. And over time, people with CF, they, we rapidly progress towards a very severe respiratory disease. And so back then, I think my parents knew that was a reality. And as I'm sure my dad told you on, on the show earlier this year, he had actually been involved in CF research and fundraising and, and efforts before I was diagnosed as fate would have it. So they, they were keenly aware of what cystic fibrosis had in store for our family. And there was no guarantee back then that I would even make it to 30 or be able to go to college or grad school and hopefully have a family of my own one day. But my parents will always tell the story of when I was first diagnosed that there was reason for optimism in CF back then. You know, the, the gene mutation had been identified. There was a lot of there was a lot of excitement around potential gene therapies, which of course never came to fruition, but it still created optimism and hope, which is so critical in the world of chronic and terminal disease, because I think that's something that people love to hang on. It's something that our family certainly hung on at the time. And it, it sort of shaped how we were going to tackle CF as a family. That the decision was made very early on that CF as a rare disease never really had 
uh, a public persona, so to speak. And my dad felt that with his platform, it was responsibility for him to, to do something. And they used my story and uh, next thing we were on that, we were on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Uh, so yeah, the truth is that when most people think of Gunnar Esaias and they think of that little boy almost 30 years ago, recently the cover of Sports Illustrated. And uh, I can tell you that I've lost some hair since then. My hair is no longer the golden, uh, the golden blonde that it once was, but uh, I think that's really a sign of progress that we've made in CF. At least that's what I tell myself. <laughs> Gunnar, when you, you talk about CF as an orphan disease, it, it, it strikes me as a disease that many of us are familiar with. And yet when I was researching uh, the topic in preparation for the show, I was shocked to see how few people it actually does impact. Could you tell us a little bit more about mm. the numbers if you have those numbers yeah. at the top of your head? Yeah, absolutely. So in the U.S., we recognize rare and orphan diseases as any condition that has fewer than 200,000 patients affected by it at, at any one time. And the CF population in the U.S. is about 35 to 40,000 patients. So yes, it is quite rare. But the reason you're right that most people kind of know what it is, is it's actually the most commonly fatal genetic condition in the U.S. So while the numbers are rare, and while there are a number of rare conditions out there, rare diseases as a whole are far more prevalent than people might think. Most people know somebody affected or have someone in their network affected by a rare disease. And for a lot of people in high school biology, the way they teach genetics in, in the States is usually through a case study around cystic fibrosis about passing different genetic mutations on to, to children. So yes, CF is something that is kind of uh, colloquially known, but it's the complexities and the nuances of it are certainly are not more generally. And across the globe, there's about anywhere between 100 and 150,000 patients living with CF at any one time. So the disease is small, the patient population is small. But what that means is that it means that there's really a finite amount of work that can be done on cystic fibrosis at any one time. And I think early on in the 90s, my parents recognized and when they started raising and raising money and fundraising for cystic fibrosis, that was sort of a uh, a giant barrier that kind of existed in the background, right? There's only so much human capital that could be focused on a rare disease like cystic fibrosis. But, you know, fortunately for, for our, our patients and our, our, our prognosis at large, the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, an organization that our, our parent, my parents worked in parallel with, was set a very clear scientific strategy very early in, you know, the 80s and 90s about what they were going to do to tackle cystic fibrosis, what they were going to do to tackle the protein dysfunction at the heart of the disease. Uh, and my parents bought into it, right? My parents became enormous fundraisers for, for our own family foundation, the Boomer Esiason Foundation. But in a lot of ways, we did support and work in parallel to the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation during those critical years in the, in the 1990s. Hmm. Do, you, do you remember when you first found out that you had cystic fibrosis? Do you I mean, I imagine you were very young. You, you mentioned being on the cover of Sports Illustrated when you were two with your blonde locks. And do you remember when it was that you realized what you had? Do you remember the conversation you might have had with your parents? I'm just curious. Yeah, no, it's a good question. I think most childhood conditions or childhood illnesses, there's always a point in time when a person living with whatever disease has to come to grips with it, the fact that they're just going to be different than everyone else. I don't remember the diagnosis. I don't remember the early years of trauma that my parents obviously went through before my diagnosis when I was sick without an answer. And in a lot of ways, they certainly went through something that a lot of American families go through uh, in searching for a rare disease diagnosis. Like the path of the undiagnosed is, is really a terrible, terrible thing. Uh, that happens here in the U.S. And my parents went through it for about two years until I finally was given that, that cystic fibrosis diagnosis. But for me, 
it really didn't show itself as far as like something that I was very keenly aware of until I was probably in first grade. And, and the way that I sort of realized that I had something going on in my own life was one morning my, my parents woke me up very, very early to go to Cincinnati Children's Hospital. I got my cystic fibrosis care at, at Cincinnati. My dad was in the final year of his, of his NFL career where he finished with the Cincinnati Bengals. And early one morning, we decided we were going to go to Cincinnati Children's Hospital. And on the way to the medical center, the, the, the day felt like immediately different, right? There was a tension in the car that was unlike any other trip to the medical center, right? With CF, there's quarterly visits, quarterly appointments with the care team, but that felt very routine and never indicated to me that I was sick, so to speak. It was just part of my normal life. But this one particular car ride definitely felt different. And the way it sort of manifested was my dad turned around, he was driving the car, turned turned and looked at me at, at a red light and said, this isn't going to hurt. So he suggested to me that something was very different. And as any keenly aware first grader, I knew that when my dad said something to me of that effect, he was certainly lying. And it turned out to be, uh, I turned out to be correct. So but when we got to Cincinnati Children's Hospital, instead of going left to the cystic fibrosis clinic, we made a right and went to an area of the hospital called interventional radiology. And for listeners who may not be familiar with interventional radiology, it's a place where they, they use x-ray to guide catheters for any sort of like non, not minimally invasive medical procedure. And in the case of cystic fibrosis, they were about to place my first ever PICC line. And a PICC line is essentially a long-term IV that feeds medication directly to, uh, to my heart. And uh, in cystic fibrosis, our lungs are a ripe breeding ground, highly infectious bacterial pathogens to take over um, because of that thick, sticky mucus that, that lives in my lungs. And of course, when that happens, when, when uh, infection does take hold, as we've all kind of learned over the last two years of the pandemic, it has to be treated right away. And in CF, we deal with some very, very serious bacterial strains that, that, that can get in there. So uh, this was the first time that I was ever going to be treated with high-dose antibiotics. And, and in order to do that, they had to place a PICC line, which requires x-ray and some numbing medication and, and sort of like a, a very minor procedure is how I would describe it. And as a six-year-old, I was clearly very nervous as soon as I stepped into the new waiting room, was stripped down and thrown into a hospital gown, really kind of my first experience with with the medical system. And there's my dad the whole time, this isn't going to hurt, this isn't going to hurt, this isn't going to hurt, sort of making things worse as the as the visit went on. My mom is really kind of the, the face of strength in our family, and she was there trying to, to calm her baby boy as best as possible, until eventually an anesthesiologist actually walked in the room, clearly saw that I was nervous, saw that both of my parents, whether or not they were showing it, were also nervous, and suggested that I drink a liquid medication medication called Versed to take the edge off, sort of uh, anti-anxiety medication that uh, could be given um, orally. But like the good first grader that I was, there was no way in hell that I was going to drink medication. I'm sure anyone who's a parent knows that kids are just not going to touch medication when it's the most convenient time possible. So there I was putting up a very serious fight against the care team and, and actually drinking the Versed till a rotating carousel of characters. So I sort of came in to try and convince me as best they could to go ahead and drink it from a nurse to a nurse from Ireland, no less, who showed me how they, they take shots in the old country, as she described. And until eventually about an hour later, when it became clear that we were like holding up the day's worth of scheduling for, for the interventional radi- uh, radiology suite, the, the anesthesiologist came back in and said, Gunner's really going to have to drink this medication. This is going on far too long. If he does not, this procedure is really going to hurt him. 
And the moment I heard that, I uh, turned around, looked my dad square in the eye, and I said, you lied to me. I was like, you lied to me. <laughs> so I jumped off his lap. We were sitting on a, like a gurney in the waiting area, and I ran away. I ran out the door, down the hall, through the lobby of Cincinnati Children's Hospital, which was now at that point wide open for business, and sort of just screaming and crying my way through the hospital. Wow, back in the interventional radiology suite, my mom looks at my dad and is like, Boomer, go get Gunner. You have to go get him. So there goes the starting quarterback of the Cincinnati Bengals running and chasing his uh, belligerent child through the hallway of, of Cincinnati Children's Hospital while it's open for business. So we had very quickly gone from uh, the cover of Sports Illustrated where my dad was sort of painted as father of the year to now all of a sudden we're creating this enormous scene in Cincinnati Children's Hospital. So finally I got to uh, a hallway where there was a dead end, like one of those those giant doors you see in a medical center that's like authorized personnel only couldn't get past it. I was stuck. The whole world seemed to be watching us. And uh, finally, my dad tracked me down and was like, please just calm down, go back in there. It's going to be okay. We'll be fine. I will do whatever you want if you go back in there. And the moment I heard that, I be and I said, you will do whatever I want. I want a Nintendo 64. That Those are my terms to go back into that interventional radiology suite. And he agreed on the spot and said, yes, as soon as we are done, we will go get the Nintendo 64. So while this is actually a story of how I became the most popular first grader in class with my new Nintendo, it's also the story of the first time that I experienced very serious medical trauma, right? I was confronted with a, a healthcare system that was not suited to be treating children the, the proper way in the early 90s, but it also made me realize very quickly that most of my first grade classmates were not running around medical centers, running away from their parents and from some big scary procedure. So I, I went back in, I cried and screamed through the entire procedure. Of course, there was some pain involved, but it was a, a doorway to what my life was going to look like with cystic fibrosis. Wow. I, I want to take that in for a minute. I didn't disclose to your dad when I interviewed him that I can actually relate in, in some respects as a father. I have a son with a, with pretty severe congenital heart disease. I know all about pick lines and I know all about having those kinds of conversations. Honestly, Gunnar, I hear that story and I don't know whether I should laugh uh, or cry. It's, it's emotional for me to just hear that story. I will say on a lighter note, however, well played on the N Nintendo 64. Yeah. In my opinion, that's the greatest game system ever made. <laughs> I know it's many generations ago. And I, I think Ocarina of Time is probably the greatest video game ever made. I don't think there's ever been a better one. Yeah, I, I can certainly agree with you. I think I was I was more suited for uh, James Bond, Goldeneye at the time. But yeah. I know I definitely got my, my fair share of uh, gaming in on that Nintendo not long after that procedure. And of course, being sick, that was like a, the greatest uh, use of my time, right? As a yeah. child with some health health issues that kind of came and went, it definitely got a lot of use. So what was your childhood like? Was it, was it, I mean, you know, was it in any way normal? Was, what was it like? Yeah, I think I would describe my childhood as like a fairly typical American childhood, except for those moments of intense medical trauma. But the truth is like, I, I went through uh, some ups and downs, right? Every time it was time to treat what we call the pulmonary exacerbation, which is just a flaring of cystic fibrosis symptoms with the Piclon, with IV antibiotics, with whatever, you know, that's when I was keenly aware that I was living with CF. But otherwise, 
fairly typical, right? I went to school. I had friends. I played sports. I played little league baseball. I played little league soccer. I played flag football. I played ice hockey. You know, I did all of these things that kids growing up should be able and allowed to do. I really credit my parents in a lot of ways because they they set a clear goal in mind and that it was I was going to be raised as any other child in my class was going to be raised and given the opportunities that kids should have at my age. And of course, the one difference was that I had cystic fibrosis, but uh, they also made a very clear decision that whenever I was going to have a play date or a friend over or whatever, it was always going to be treatment time. So cystic fibrosis care is what I consider to be active and arduous, right? Aside from those moments of pulmonary exacerbation and flaring of symptoms when we treat with IV antibiotics, the care is constant, right? As a kid growing up, my days were marked with uh, what I called treatment sessions in the beginning and then a treatment session in the evening. And it's a mixture of different inhaled medications from steroids to mucolytics, meaning drugs that clear the mucus out to inhaled antibiotics. And then there was always this, uh, this treatment session, like a physical therapy session that we called chest PT, where my parents would actually beat on my chest to loosen the mucus in my lungs and cough it up. Of course, technology came in and has now replaced that very, you know, sort of intimate treatment to, to replace it with what we call the vest, which is just a, a device, a, de- a device that we strap on and it sort of, it just shakes us and it shakes the mucus out of our lungs so that we cough, right? The goal in cystic fibrosis is to constantly cough the mucus out of our lungs so that we can breathe better. So my days were always marked by a treatment session in the morning that took about 45 minutes to an hour and then a treatment session at night that took another 45 minutes to an hour. So all told, I was very actively caring for my cystic fibrosis about an hour and a half to two hours a day. But whenever I had friends over, my parents made the decision that I was going to do a treatment session in front of them, right? There was no other way to educate school-age children about cystic fibrosis than to show them what it was like and what I had to go through And instead of me sort of feeling, you know, strange about treatments or whatever, my parents made it a very social time in the house. So my friends from school got to learn about it. My sister or my my dad would sit there with me while I would do treatments. My mom would sit there and they realized very early on, my dad tells the story that when I was about three or four years old and they set up my, my nebulizer and went that I was in the TV room watching Thomas the Tank Engine or whatever. My dad turned my nebulizer on walked out of the room, but he heard me coughing and stopped and was like, oh my God, I have to go in there and sit there with Gunner. Gunner cannot be alone while he does these treatments. And from that moment on, it was always, the focus was always, how can we make, how can we bring in other people to Gunner's fight against cystic fibrosis? And from a very, very early age, my uh, support system was a very a significant priority for our family whether it was direct family member, friends from school, teachers, whatever. And it was always built around sort of showing what cystic fibrosis was like to live with. So I'm hearing you you speak about support, and I can hear how obviously loving your family has been throughout all of this. But I want to fast forward to your early 20s and read something that you wrote and, and ask you about it, because I found it interesting, and I really am curious to learn more about what you meant. You wrote, in 2013, just after I graduated from Boston College, I began slipping towards end-stage illness. Cystic fibrosis is a killer because of the spread of antibiotic-resistant bacteria in our lungs. Drug-resistant bacteria infiltrate our lungs and settle in the thick, sticky mucus inside our airways. The drug-resistant respiratory infection comes with fever, increased cough, aches, pains, fatigue, shortness of breath, 
coughing up blood and collapsed lungs. Over time, the infection leads to a steady loss of lung function. These are all symptoms I had been prepared for from years of living with CF. What no one prepared me for, however, was crippling loneliness. And that's what I wanted to understand better. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I want to back up and sort of talk about what my journey was like to that point, right? As I, as I went through my college years, it became quite clear that I was not going to be able to do the things that I wanted to do. Those moments of medical trauma where I would be encountering the health system to get an, an IV to do IV antibiotics or a pick line or a procedure or whatever became more and more frequent as I progressed through college. And it sort of peaked during my sophomore year when I developed pancreatitis, which is a, a rare complication of cystic fibrosis, but essentially it's like extreme inflammation in, in, in the pancreas. And it's a unique organ because it's also uh, a main player and, and serves a key role in cystic fibrosis. And the way that we treat it is you, know, you can't remove your pancreas like someone can remove an, an appendix when someone has appendicitis. So we had to basically uh, forced me to fast, right? So I was no longer able to eat. I was no longer able to drink. I was just able to get some IV nutrition, you know, hydration, whatever, for several days. And that really pushed my health to the brink. By the end of that hospitalization, I had lost so much weight that I was weighing in below 130 pounds, right? And I'm six foot three. So I was wow. very much skin and bones as a sophomore in college. I was 20 years old and confronted with like a very serious a medical event that would, in a lot of cases, be like a life or death situation. And the only option that I had moving forward was to have a feeding tube placed. And feeding tubes for, for folks who may not be super familiar with the medical world are like life-extending devices, right? They're things that are put into people to keep them alive for just a little bit longer so that they, they can maybe hopefully benefit from, from, from prolonged treatment. In cystic fibrosis, we use them in a very similar way, but they're also supportive care because, because of the disease in our pancreas it sort of leads to minimal weight. From there, I was able to actually put on weight. So the feeding tube served its purpose. It extended my life. It allowed me to get back to college. It allowed me to continue my studies, but my pulmonary health continued to sort of decline because of that one very serious episode. And the words that I use to describe declining pulmonary pulmonary function, sort of like they sent a shiver down my spine because I, I remember those days very, you know, very acutely. And it's true, you know, I there I was, struggling to breathe and do the most, you know, mundane of tasks and get through college. And I remember back then that I had a desire uh, to go to law school, actually. My goal was to finish college, go on to law school. And I think back then I had convinced myself becoming a lawyer was the best way to affect change in the world. And my wife still makes fun of me to this day because she can't believe that my dream was to become a litigator. No offense to, to the lawyers out there listening, but I, it became quite clear to me that I was not going to be able to do that. Right. And while I was going in a direction that the only correct path for me was to move back in with my parents and really focus on my health my friends from college and from growing up were all beginning their careers, right? They were all moving to New York City or Boston or wherever, and they were starting in the very beginning of starting the rest of their lives. And I remember growing up that it was always described to me that my early 20s would be the best years of my life because I would finally be on my own. I would be making money. I would be pursuing my passions from a professional standpoint. 
when that just simply wasn't the case for me, right? I was back at home with my parents. It felt very much like high school again. I would wake up, I would spend hours and hours doing treatments, right? I described earlier that my treatment sessions were maybe 45 minutes to an hour growing up. Well, by the time I was 22, 23 years old, I was doing treatments for two hours at a time, right? I was doing, I was spending so much of my personal time just trying to stay healthy and get myself to a point where I could be a functional because going on behind the scenes here, while this was happening, the drug development in cystic fibrosis was starting to take off, right? Um, the money that our foundation had raised in parallel with the money that the cystic fibrosis foundation was raising and then investing into drug development was starting to take a stride. So around, uh, the turn of the millennium, the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation turned itself from a, a sleepy nonprofit to a quasi like venture capital firm that was investing in drug makers in a strategic scientific initiative around correcting and rescuing the protein dysfunction at the heart of cystic fibrosis. And we knew this was happening, right? The CF Foundation was very publicly broadcasting that they had started to make some headway in developing drugs that could rescue CFTR, the, the name of the protein at the heart of CF. And what that really meant was that if you could hang on a little bit longer, maybe a drug would come to bring you out of this, out of this, out of this spiral for all of the patients that were going through this. And what was happening to me was a very classic path through cystic fibrosis that by the time patients got to their 20s, their health started, our health started to decline across the board. And in 2012, the first drug uh, called Kaleidico was approved for use in cystic fibrosis for about 5% of patients with a very rare manifestation of CF based on their genetic profile. And the drug was like an immediate home run for those very few patients that were able to take it. Like their health exploded, their reliance on treatments and medical support and continuing care was, was almost, it almost evaporated overnight. And while I was not one of the patients that was able to benefit from that drug, we all saw it happen in real time in 2012, 2013, right around when I was graduating from college. And that glimmer of hope is really what set me down this path of being like, okay, I have to get more involved in the CF world. I have to become a, a stronger patient advocate. What can I do despite my declining health to become uh, the best possible person that I could? Because um, you're right, you know, what you described earlier is exactly how I was feeling most days. Right. And the best way to illustrate that is when I woke up in the morning to my journey from the bedroom to the bathroom was like a nightmare. Right. I just I couldn't do it on my own power most mornings without stopping to cough and catch my breath. And most mornings, even going as far as either vomiting or having to really take my time to get there. It was a really brutal experience. And throughout the course of the next several years, I mean, I was dealing with either a hospital-based intervention or hospitalization almost every other month at that point. And it just became a grind. But there was my hope, right? I saw that Kaleidico had rescued the CFTR protein for, for some people. And I just held on to the idea that that could be me one day, right? I had something that I could touch and feel that I needed to work towards. And that's when I first enrolled in a clinical trial. So in 2013, I enrolled in my first clinical trial. And while the drug trial failed for my specific uh, mutations at the heart of CF, I learned something absolutely critical about clinical research in rare disease. And it's that patients, not only do we live and experience and feel disease, but we are a critical resource inside the world of drug development uh, and the healthcare industry, right? I was presented an opportunity to be enrolled in a clinical trial. I'm one of very few people who was able to actually enroll because 
of so few people out there with cystic fibrosis that were uh, available for, cl for clinical trials at the time that I, it, it dawned upon me that when presented with an opportunity to be involved in clinical research, because I live with a rare disease, I simply could not say no. Because if too many people say no, clinical advances cannot happen. And that's kind of uh, my gateway to, to what it was like living with very severe disease, but also trying to do something at the same time. Yeah. Fascinating answer and, and perspective. And despite the advances, it still seemed like things were not necessarily going in the right direction. And, and you wrote one day in particular, I broke, I was working as a part-time high school football coach on Long Island. I was about to head to football practice when I couldn't start the car. Reality struck me and I confronted my life without a future. I was heading towards end stage illness disability income, and an eventual end to my fight. But then everything for you changed in 2018 and 2019, right? And, and could you tell us about, about what happened, about, about mm -hmm. what ultimately happened in the area of drug <clears throat> development? I, I had that moment of complete breakdown not long after I enrolled in that, that clinical trial back in 2013, and it was clear that it wasn't, it wasn't working. But I, I got to the point where I was able to introduce some stability in my, into my life just by the fact that I was receiving so much care as part of the clinical trial program that I was initially in. I kind of proved to myself that I could survive a little bit and I just had to keep chugging along, right? I had to keep enrolling myself in clinical trial programs, being involved in continuing care. And the truth is that right around 2018, when I enrolled in what was then the time, the third clinical trial that I, I attempted to be a part of, the advances that the company uh, had made to develop the drug Colidico were accelerating, right? So they ended up uh, bringing to market a drug called Orcambi and Simnico, which continued to rescue that CFTR protein at the heart of cystic fibrosis in more and more patients. And as I grew older and maybe a little bit more sophisticated around understanding like the nuanced world of drug development, I was at a crossroads with this, this, this eventual clinical trial in, in 2018 for a drug compound that at the time we called the triple combo. And it was again, made by Vertex, the sponsor, but we knew that in vitro, meaning inside the test tube, this drug was able to rescue CFTR protein in about 90% of patients. And I was part of that 90% eventually. So I was really excited about getting into a clinical trial. I felt like maybe you know, this would be my real last chance really of, of actually experiencing good health if this, if this trial program worked. Because up to that point, I had gone through about two dozen hospitalizations or medical-based procedures from 2013 to 2018. I was at the end of my road. I was exhausted. I was beaten down. I had gone through just so much crap that I felt like I just needed it to end and I needed something to go my way. And that clinical trial program did. I, I dosed on April 9th, 2018. And within 12 hours, I noticed the change. My, my oxygen saturation, which had hovered around the baseline of about 90%, mean that's the amount of oxygen that's detected in my blood, which is pretty low by all standards, immediately shot up to 99%, meaning there was wow. suddenly more oxygen in my blood. And you can't really feel that difference, like at least I couldn't, but I noticed that over the next day or two, my mucus started to change, right? The mucus in my lungs that is normally thick and sticky, and that's sort of the classical mucus problem that is very apparent in cystic fibrosis, started to become, like I, I can't even describe it, more viscous, I suppose. And I just started feeling qualitatively better until two weeks later, I did my first pulmonary function test after starting that drug trial and my, pul my pulmonary function exploded. 
I went from probably categorizing myself as severe disease to mild or moderate. And my, my future was suddenly unlocked, right? My cough went away. My energy came back. I started to put weight on. I felt better. I could breathe and I could suddenly do whatever I wanted to do. And I was finally confronted with that when my, my then girlfriend, now wife asked me, she's like, what do you want to do with your life now that you have it back? And I was confronted with a choice that I did not know how to understand or adequately comprehend. I was confronted with suddenly a future that I had been denied for so, so long. Wow. Wow. That, that I, I, I can only imagine. I mean, it is almost like a rebirth. Gunnar, out of respect, I, I didn't, I didn't you know, jump right into the interview about cystic fibrosis just because I tell myself that you and your family don't want the Gunnar Esiason story to be only about cystic fibrosis. Is that true? I assume it is. Or, or do you embrace, embrace it as just part of your calling? Do you sometimes feel that you're overly tied to, to the disease that you've had to deal with? I can certainly say that it's certainly one large part of my life. And during those years from 2013 to 2018, when I was at my sickest between graduating college and starting that clinical trial, I mean, it was my every day, right? That's, that's what my life was. My life was taking care of my, taking care of myself, trying to stay alive, going to appointments more than I, more than I cared to even imagine. But it was one small, it was one part of me. I had other things going on in my life. I, I was a high school football and high school ice hockey coach. My, the athletic director at my high school alma mater knew that I was going through a tough time. And uh, I really credit those jobs with getting me through those tough years because they forced me to be on my feet. They forced me to be moving around. They forced me to to have something else going for me in my life. And during those days, like I, I definitely looked forward to practice, right? It was, it was my social, my social aspect of, of life of my life that I so desperately needed. And I was able to keep myself from drowning in a world of just cystic fibrosis and cystic fibrosis only. And I think that's so critically important, right? I think it's important that everyone uh, out there has so many different facets of their own life and that one overarching thing can't just take over. Right, my parents worked hard as 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 raising me to think that way. Right, I we described a little earlier in the podcast. Like I had friends, I uh, played sports, I did everything that I would consider to be a very fairly typical American childhood. But later in life, that that raising really did pay dividends. Right, I was able to experience life in what I had hoped to be kind of a similar way. Like I, I kept everything else going in my life as best as I could. Of course, cystic fibrosis was a huge part, but I also used it to learn. Right, I used it to learn about the drug development uh, world. I used it to learn about health policy in the United States. I learned to, I used it to learn about where care delivery succeeds and where it fails in the U.S. And I was at the same time preparing myself for a future without CF. However minute that hope may have been at the time, I still continued to strive for more so that when I did finally come around and my health came back to me suddenly overnight, I was prepared to, continue, was prepared to move on. And I would say that the, my connection to the CF world today is still very, very real, still very important to me, but it doesn't take over my days like it used to. And I think my parents deserve a lot, a lot of credit for raising me in a way to, to believe that. Well, let's shift to your parents for a minute. So I, I as you had, had your dad on, on the show, 
and not surprisingly, his appearance was was definitely one of the most popular. I'm a fan of your your father for many reasons, especially around philanthropy, but certainly from a sports perspective as well. And I also really appreciate the respect he's given to the New England Patriots over the last <laughs> the last uh, 20 years as a Patriots fan. But his pursuit of this cure has mobilized an entire community, and uh, and he's really helped to change the world for the better. And I can hear when you talk about him, the love that you have for him. Tell us a little bit about your relationship with him. Yeah, I think I think at, at the core, my parents were dealt a tough hand, right? They they were they were uh, they were dealt a tough hand because they had a sick child very very early on, and they were confronted with the choice of well, what do we do? Do we do we try to make the maximum potential impact, or do we just kind of sit back and let someone else do the work? And um, I'm not saying there's a right or wrong answer there, but I know his own, his, his, his first two conversations after my diagnosis, after obviously talking about it with my mom, were to his own father and to Frank DeFord. His own father was a sturdy World War II veteran type guy, a really hardworking man. And the, 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 the choice was clear, do whatever, whatever you can to, to help gunners, what you have to do, it's what your responsibility is to do. And then he called Frank DeFord because... When my dad won the NFL MVP in the, in the late 80s. He was at an award ceremony or some, like he was America's guest at that time. And he was at a gala where Frank DeFord spoke very eloquently about his daughter, Alex, who died, of cystic fiber, died because of cystic fibrosis in the 70s. And Frank's talk that evening really touched my father deeply and he wanted to be involved. So as fate would have it, I was diagnosed and, and my dad's second call was to Frank and both those, both those men in his life, Frank Ford and, and my grandfather, said, you got to be a father first and foremost, and you got to be the best possible father that you can be for my dad, effort for Gunner. And my dad interpreted that as doing whatever he could to help. And I have been front and center to see the amount of effort and time that he puts into to cystic fibrosis fundraising, to cystic fibrosis advocacy, to cystic fibrosis work to be some often really in, in, in awe at the amount of uh, work that he has done for our condition. And I, I guess I get a lot of credit for living through CF, but the, the, the reality is that my dad dedicated his life to one specific cause. It used to be the Super Bowl, winning the Super Bowl, but now it's defeating cystic fibrosis. And I, I, I think after I got married this past year and my wife and I are now pregnant, expecting a baby any day, I think he confidently can can fall asleep at night knowing that he's he's gotten me to a point in in my life where I'm able to to live not necessarily free of CF certainly free of the horrors that used to that I used to experience sure and, and let's not leave your mom out of this you wrote my mom is really the unsung hero when it comes to the invaluable support i've gotten from my family throughout my fight with cystic fibrosis Whereas my dad gets a ton of the credit, rightfully so, in the public eye for bringing a ton of awareness to the disease, my mom has been and still is the backbone for the hands-on fight at home. Yeah, the truth is my mom was the one who kept me alive, right? My mom was the, my frontline care provider, the person who was willing to argue with my, my doctors and providers, with the insurance company, with the healthcare system, with everything that's required of patients to navigate American healthcare. My mom was the one who navigated it for me when I could not because I was at my sickest. And the truth is she is the, the shining pillar of strength in our family. She, she is not the person who is, is easily broken by the, the healthcare system in the U.S. as it does to so many people. And I think what I can 
the best way to describe my relationship with my mom is that after my, after I, I, I finished my treatments, right? It's a daily thing. After I finished my treatments, I have to sterilize my nebulizer pieces, right? So that because I'm inhaling a medication and everything has to be as clean as possible. And to this day, my mom and I still disagree on the best way to sterilize my, my treatment equipment. And I think it's just, I don't want to say it's like our difference in age or our difference in like perspectives of time, but she does things that are uh, above and beyond the call of duty. And she will only finish projects if they're 110% done. And I think she believes that the way that I like to sterilize my nebulizer, uh, my nebulizer equipment isn't good enough for her standards. <laughs> so if that doesn't describe who my mom is, I, I don't know what else will. Connor, I, I have some advice for you. Always listen to your mother. Always. Uh, that, that is advice well taken. And I think that's advice that my family has leaned on in, in a very, very big and, and important way. So let's shift for a moment to the Boomer Esiason Foundation. And I did talk to your father at length about it, but I'd love to hear you you speak a little bit about your perspective on the work that you're doing at BEF and what the organization is doing and the future for that organization. The foundation was initially set up as a, really in the first few years, as a fundraising network for, for my family to support the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, right? The Cystic Fibrosis Foundation is the world leader in drug development and scientific and scientific research into cystic fibrosis. And for many years, the foundation supported the CF Foundation's work. Then after the, the drug development sort of coming to fruition with Kaleidico or Canby, Syndico, and Natrikafta, we've shifted in the way that we use our, our funding to support patients in the here and now. And what we have recognized and we have heard from patient communities is that living with cystic fibrosis is tantamount to a full-time job. There's so much that's required of patients to stay healthy that they need whatever help they can get and however they can get it. So we provide scholarship opportunities for people with CF going through college. We provide grant assistance for people who are going through the transplant process at end-stage illness. We provide financial assistance for CF families that are victims of natural disasters. We have more recently and unfortunately have had to provide assistance for cystic fibrosis families that have had to make a choice between continuing to work in the public in public facing roles and a risk getting sick from COVID. And we're helping them through those tough situations. And I think I'm most proud of our financial assistance pro, assistance programs at, at the foundation. The other thing that we really do well is we are on the advocacy front in a very significant way, right? Because we because cystic fibrosis is a rare disease, that there's very little political power that comes along with the patient population that's really only the size of about 45,000, you know, 40,000 people in the United States. So we have to be extremely loud about the needs for people with cystic fibrosis from a drug development standpoint, from a healthcare access standpoint. Um, in the pandemic, we were very loud about access to vaccines early on in the rollout when they were still rationed. And I think my dad and I recognize that we both have a very loud and significant platform, and we are extremely thoughtful about the way that we use it for the foundation. And it's important that we also give that platform and yield it to other patients and families, because my experience with cystic fibrosis is really only my own. If there's, there's 40,000 people in the U.S. that experience it in their own ways, and it's important that they are also given the opportunity to talk about it on their own terms as well. And then finally, we do also support clinical research as well, right? We have really at the insistence of my now wife, who is a, a trauma psychotherapist and a trained mental health worker, really been focused on uh, the mental health 
piece of, of, of living with a terminal chronic illness, right? It should shock no one that life with chronic illness also comes with complex emotions and feelings. It wasn't until uh, you know, my mid-20s when someone finally asked me how I felt about living with cystic fibrosis. And that's something that's really been missing in the, in the standard of care for CF for a long time. So our foundation has supported the single largest interventional clinical trial in mental health interventions. Uh, in CF, for specific for CF patients. So that's something I'm really proud about as well. And then more recently, we've also started to get involved with the technology side of, of, of academic and translational medicine. We realize that we live in this amazing era of information. Providers and the patients should have access to as much information as they can to make healthcare more efficient. And we've started to advance technologies into uh, clinical settings that uh, can hopefully accelerate um, remaining therapeutic needs in cystic fibrosis. Thank you. We're going to move into the extraordinary teaching segment of our podcast. But before we do that, I want to ask you one big question. I have a little bit of apprehension in asking you the question. And as I think about your life and uh, where you've come, and I listen to this incredibly articulate person, and you're very well educated, and you're pursuing further education, you're married, you're about to have a child. What's the future look like for you? What's the future, not just a year from now? What's the long-term future for Gunnar Esiason? Well, I can tell you that my, my absolute priority in my life has always been, first and foremost, my own health. Secondly, it's, it's been my patient population. Like those are the two most important things in my life. And I think in two weeks, I'm going to have a new most important thing in my life. And I, I look back at how my parents raised me, the amount of effort, time, diligence, and love they put into my childhood. And I know that inspires me to hopefully be uh, the best possible father that I can be. That is my, my new number one goal in life. And I will qualify success as a... A loving father. I think that's my new goal. But I think beyond that, I I have a greater desire to have a maximum possible impact in uh, American healthcare for people living with rare diseases. I have seen what the biotechnology industry can do for a patient population like mine, what it has done for me. And I feel extremely passionate about that, simply because there are millions of Americans living with rare diseases that are still unmet and are still struggling. So I, I know that I want to get into a place where I can not only have influence on policies that affect rare diseases, but also influence the capital inflows into um, additional therapeutic development or technology that can assist people with rare diseases. Thank you. Thank you. So Gunnar, the, the next segment, uh, which will be somewhat brief, is, is going to involve my asking you some of the questions that I probably asked your dad as well. And I ask <laughs> most of my guests, I, I like to ask these questions because I like to hear how extraordinary people answer them often differently. And the first question is, do you have a personal mission? Do I have a personal mission? And I do. And I think I think the best way to describe that is is with with an anecdote and one that I've kind of already shared, right? It's something that I learned the first time I was in a clinical trial. And it's that patients have a responsibility to not only themselves, but also their own condition. And now more broadly, I think to uh, the family of conditions called rare diseases here in the US. So my personal mission 
is the deep responsibility that I feel to improving you know, the lived condition of chronic and terminal illness. That is my mission. Thank you. Uh, that might answer the next question, but I want to just give you a chance anyway. Many years from now, what will your legacy be? I hope my legacy is that I was a great father. I think that's, that's the legacy that I hope that I have. That's a good answer. That's a way to, to, to definitely make the world better, in my humble opinion. What single tip would you offer that has helped you be your most extraordinary self? Always be willing to learn. I think when I was, when I was at my sickest in 2013, 2014, I spent a lot of my time reading about other amazing people and amazing feats. And I think the thing that I learned then that has shaped who I am today is that making it from one day to the next is, is never promised. In fact, I consider what I'm living right now to be bonus time. And I, I think if I could draw one theme from the number of memoirs that I've read or biographies that I've read or amazing historical stories that I've read is that with bonus time, that's when great things are able to happen. And that there's no measure of what great needs to be or not be. It's whatever is important to you individually. And I think that's, that's my, my key takeaway, right? Always be willing to learn and then actually apply those learnings later in life. Who are your key role models and mentors? Well, my dad, first and foremost, I think my dad has shown me what it means to be an amazing parent, a hard worker, anyone who knows what he does is he has his hands in a hundred million things all at once. And I maybe unfortunately have taken that from him because I think I'm the same person who likes to have my hands in a lot of different projects all at the same time. He's number one. Number two is of course my mom as well. I cannot, I can never uh, look back on some of my toughest years without the presence that my mom showed, whether it was watching Jeopardy with me every, every evening at dinner time, and then in, even encouraging me to try out for Jeopardy, which is one of the most humbling experiences I've ever had when I didn't get called for an audition. But I think, I think those two are the, are the, the two people that I think of first. And then my, my wife. My wife is the, the person who is willing to question what I uh, consider unwavering confidence. She is willing to disagree with me, and she is willing to be my biggest fan. So I think those three people in my life are the people that I look up to the most and the people that I... Uh, I'm willing to uh, say have shaped me into who I am today. Thank you. What have been your biggest mistakes or learning opportunities? Biggest mistakes or learning opportunities. I think my biggest learning opportunity in my life was my friendship with my friend Leah. It was not a mistake in any way whatsoever, but it was a learning opportunity. She, she was about my age and about the same physical health that I had when I enrolled into the clinical trial for that eventually became Trikafta. As part of any clinical trial program, there's a set of criteria called inclusion criteria that patients have to meet to be accepted into a, tri a trial program. And despite us sharing about the same physical health, the very severe cystic fibrosis, uh, I was able to get in because my pulmonary function was above a, an arbitrary, a seemingly arbitrary line. Hers was not. And you know, while I very quickly and rapidly got better on the uh, clinical trial program, her health declined extremely rapidly to the point where eight months later, she was admitted to ICU because of rapidly progressing cystic fibrosis. And then we woke up one morning and she was gone. And I think what I took away from that experience was that 
the incentives that patients have inside American healthcare are wildly different than the ones that regulators think we need to have, the ones that drug companies think that we need to have, the one that scientists and scientific progress thinks that we need to have. Her friendship showed me what it is to live with dignity at the end of life. And she's someone that I still think about often, but I learned from, from that relationship how inefficient American healthcare can be when it needs to be efficient more than anything else. So that, that, that would be my greatest, my greatest learning experience. I think my greatest mistake would be trusting that system to do the right thing. Trusting providers, the industry, the regulators, everyone involved to do the right thing when it matters most. And because of that, I think that's, that's what set me on this path for, for initially for graduate education, but also I think for what the rest of my career is going to look like. Those are some really powerful answers. Gunnar, I actually have a, a, a million other questions I, I'd love to, to ask you. <laughs> Maybe we'll have to have you back. I've really enjoyed this. And I have to say that I'm feeling, I'm feeling especially inspired after speaking with you. And I want to thank you for that. I think that I'll, uh, I'll have a, a lighter step for the rest of the day. And thank you for that. I know that you inspire many other people. And I want to thank you for coming on the show. Any parting words that you, that you want to Offer? No, I, I I appreciate the invite. It was uh, it was great chatting with you. Like I said, I, I did my undergrad in Boston, so I have a great affinity for for most things Boston. Maybe not the same affinity my dad has for the New England Patriots. But if anyone wants to learn more about uh, the foundation, it's www.asiason.org. They can follow me on Twitter, on Instagram. I have a blog, gunnerasiason.com. But I think my my parting words are: give thanks this holiday season, and we are we are living in a very very special time. Uh, time when rare diseases can be conquered. And I think I'm hopeful that my own experience shows that uh, it can happen for others too. And that is the extraordinary Gunnar Esteyson. Join me in following him on Twitter at G17 Esteyson. You can also send Gunnar an email at gunnersblog at esteyson.org. He's available for speaking engagements, motivational talks, academic lectures, and Cystic Fibrosis Family Education Days. To learn more about Gunner's work at the Boomer Esiason Foundation, you can visit www.esiason.org. And thank you to our sponsor, The Colony Group. The Colony Group is a national wealth and business management company with offices across the country that itself seeks the extraordinary as it pursues its unrelenting mission of providing clients with peace of mind and empowering their visions of tomorrow. To learn more about The Colony Group and how it manages beyond money, visit www.thecolonygroup.com. You can also follow The Colony Group on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Colony Group. For Seeking the Extraordinary, I'm Michael Nathanson. Follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter at Nathanson underscore MJ and learn more about my ongoing search for The Extraordinary.